Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live, on tape, from the urban jungle of Culver City, adjacent California, from my eight-year-old son's bedroom, boasting the finest Star Wars bed sheets Target has to offer. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, making his Tully Show return, the drummer of Motion City Soundtrack, the host of the Bizarre Albums podcast, and an all-around delightful human being. Hello, and welcome back, Tony Thaxton. Hi, it's great to be back. I gotta know more about these bedsheets. Uh, let's see. We are currently looking at... Um, it's a little bit of a, a, a perhaps a Star Wars faux pas, or maybe he's just a little Star Wars fashion forward. We have Last Jedi sheets and Force Awakens uh, blanket. Hey, I'll I, I'll allow it. You know, if I'll, I'll mix all the all the uh, the eras, even you know, and that's that's the that's even the same trilogy there. So you know, I don't think there's anything wrong there. All of the Jurassic World stickers on his wall beside it are kind of. Are kind of messing with the overall theme yeah and then yeah that's that's a whole other story that those uh those movies because yeah those uh i wanna i wanna still love it when they put new ones out but boy uh that honestly the first the ju- first jurassic world i'm not saying it was good but i could watch it and i kind of had a, a good time watching it Whereas the next one they did after that i i did not enjoy but jurassic the original my point was the original jurassic park <laughs> One of my all-time favorites, and I can watch it anytime. See, again, I think you're a couple years younger than me, and this is where you sort see the generational cleave, because I, I am still not sure that I've ever seen the original all the way through. Really? And Yeah, and I don't know that I really care. I was going to lift and show you an entire Lego Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom... Yeah, uh, I think that's the second one, yeah. Yeah, Mansion. Like, that's, the, that's the most recent one, right? Ooh, I believe I'll tell, so. I'll tell you my problem with that one. Here's the real problem with that one is it's fine. It's for kids. My kid enjoyed it. It did its job. The problem is... And I don't think I'm not spoiling anything. And if I am, fuck you, Jurassic, whatever franchise, <laughs> is that the movie that was promised in the trailer is actually the last five minutes of the movie. The entire thing mm. is really just a setup for the next one, which is what we've all, what this has always been building toward, which is dinosaurs are loose in the world. Right. And so you have this thing where they're running Jeff Goldblum back out and he's, welcome to Jurassic World. World, and you see like a like a like a mosasaurus attacking a surfer, and you're like, oh, here we go. That's that is literally the last ten seconds of the movie of now the dinosaurs are loose. Yeah, so that's see, I, I already have forgotten that. I don't even remember that happening. That's spreading the peanut butter a little too thin. Uh-huh. Like if you, <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of uh, they kind of did that already in the second of the original movie of Jurassic Park, the Lost, Lost World. World. Yeah, toward the later portion of that movie, the T Rex ends up uh, in San Diego. I think it is. Oh, for real? Yeah, because they and then like. There's- and then they, there's the weird one you forget. Uh, Tia Leone and William oh, H Macy got a Jurassic. Yeah, that one's bad. That one's bad. It's real bad. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I I, I love the first one. Second one is okay. I mm-hmm. I can watch the second one, but yeah. I feel like it's downhill pretty quick after that. You know, I feel like it's gotten it's it's never going to get easier to make amazing movies, but they've gotten way better at making movies not terrible. And uh-huh. so, I think in a lot of ways you could the Star Wars franchise which you and I often talk about is a really really good example of where the first ones are, you know, inarguably iconic and then the bottom drops out with the second set and then the third one it's just like there's so many tasteful skilled cooks in the kitchen. It was never going to be absolutely awful. And yeah. it, it, but it, but you can't create magic. You can't you can't just concoct greatness just because you, you you can't will greatness to be. There has to be some magic that happens there. And then the the new Jurassic uh, Worlds is Chris Pratt is not going to let you down. I'm on I'm I'm all in on Chris Pratt as, yeah. as an acceptable leading man. And what's her face running around in high heels the whole time? Uh, yeah, Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah, 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 yeah. She delivers the goods. So it's uh-huh. like you, it, it follows the very same uh, trajectory of the iconic originals, which they're always trying to recapture the magic. They let the bottom totally drop out, and now they can just make perfectly fine jurassic they can crank out a perfectly fine jurassic world every two years for the rest of time if they so choose yeah and, and they probably, probably continue to make money off of them as yeah, well yeah yeah yeah. oh that's yeah. the other thing yeah, yeah yeah that's the funny thing that i think as adults we often forget is that we quibble and i say this about the pixar stuff and how they keep on making cars movies and stuff like that we we quibble over the um the quality but the profitability of these things is is never in question you know, yeah. you have to, you have to live with a three year old boy to understand the monumental restraint on the part of Pixar to have only made three Cars movies. Because I'm mm-hmm. here to tell you, they could be making, <laughs> they could be releasing Cars 17 this summer. They could put out three Cars <laughs> per year, and they would sell toys from every single one of them. Yeah, I and I believe it. It's uh, I know, and it's a shame. I mean, but again, it's it's for kids. But like the of all the Pixar movies, I feel like I genuinely enjoy pretty much all of them except for the Cars movies. <laughs> I know, I, I know, I know, and, and I, I've had this uh, this debate with Doug Benson before that the whole idea yeah. was that they could they could make four quadrant movies, they could make things that please everybody, but mm-hmm. it's just once again like when when the bean counters are like, here's what we stand to make globally if Mater just gets his head stuck up his ass for <laughs> and ninety minutes, and they go, yeah, but what about this old man in a balloon? And then old man in a balloon actually wins. Like you have no idea what a triumph of art over commerce that actually really, really is. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, I know. And I was, I, I remember yeah. when so they, don't, they don't, don't get mad at them for the cars movies they have made. Uh, applaud them for the ones they have not. For sure. Anyways. Now, if they want to do a gritty reboot of Cars, that is something that I am interested <laughs> in because there are so many unanswered questions like just for example what happens if they roll down their windows now i guess there are convertible cars because when the when the eyes are the windshield <laughs> right it's it the the question is are are there brains inside the front and you know the the driver and passenger seat like, there's there's a lot of logistical questions in that world i don't like why is why are there even roads like if if every if everyone is just a car uh-huh. I mean, I guess, well, why, I guess well, maybe is, the roads could be like sidewalks. Roads? Yeah, okay. Maybe that's a better way to look at it. Why you is anything plants? <laughs> right. I mean, this should really be more of a Transformers type terrain. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's new with uh, Bizarre Albums? What have you been doing? 
Uh, yeah, just cranking them out every week. Uh, the newest episode is on the 1980 Chevy Chase album, which, oh my God. uh, yeah, it's, it's something. See, now I almost kind of put this disclaimer in the episode, but I ended up not doing it. Um, cause I, I kind of felt like the episode or the, sorry, the record teeters a little bit for me of like whether, it fits the classification for my show because you know the it it technically is a comedy album uh but it is all songs and yeah. like comedy music is is that's a whole other thing and like you know it's supposed to be funny or whatever so like uh, but this is uh, first God, of I, all I, I i really this is not the first time i've admired your purity towards this concept <laughs> well it's funny people will like email me sometimes and they'll like suggest a record and they're like is it would you consider that a bizarre up like it's all like i mean i get it's my show so it is all up to me but like yeah like they make it like i'm some sort of like i'm the be all end all of yes that is a bizarre album um well, yeah, are but I mean, because well, I mean, you're you're you're, you're king of bizarre <laughs> album mountain until somebody comes to try to knock guess, you off. Is um, it, you're reminding me a little bit of I, I used to always read the the thing on the Onion AV Club commentary tracks of the Damned, where they would take horrible failures of movies and then they would listen to the commentary track from the director where the person tried to sift through how this awful movie had made, and there was one of the sections in that was the inevitable dash of pretension. That uh-huh. no matter how uh, woeful the movie was and how, how poorly conceived and executed it was, there was always a moment where the director had to flash a little bit of their film school thing where they're mm-hmm. like, you know, I feel like I've got a little bit of a Kierkegaard thing going on here, even <laughs> though it's like, you know, Barracuda versus Sharknado. Um, yeah. Do you feel like there was a dash of pretension to the way that Chevy Chase did it? Because that that to me means you can you can you can. Uh, it can be funny for unintentional reasons, even though it's trying to be funny, and that makes it bizarre. Yeah, I think for me, what it was is he, you know, he. This was it came out in 1980, so this is post oh, okay. SNL for him, but pre-vacation. But he's still, you know, he's pretty huge at, at that point. And yeah, the cocaine uh, is flowing freely. Yes. Oh, and there's a lot of drug jokes on the record, uh, and he has a music background. Like, he played music before he did comedy. Ooh, and ooh, ooh, ooh. Okay, wow, you're going to tie into my thing very, very well. Keep going. Okay. Yeah, so, like, that was sort of the thing is is that, uh, like, music kind of, like, ran in his family a bit. And he played, he was actually in a band in the 60s that put out a record on, I think it was MCA? I'm, I forget at the moment. But, uh, like, a legitimate record. The band was called Chameleon Church. And... Uh, so he played drums and sang one song on the record. Uh, and then I think it's it's kind of well known at this point that he, when in college, also played in a band with Walter Becker and uh, Donald Fagan from Steely Dan. Yes. Pre-Steely Dan. Uh, so, yeah. So he's got some kind of like legit music background. And then, uh, yeah, kind of just switched to comedy at uh, one point. And then I guess, yeah, when he got big enough, he was like, hey, I'm going to put these together and make something that no one enjoys. <laughs> so it's funny that you mentioned Chevy Chase playing music because the thing that I want to talk to you about today, the reason I reached out to you, as you know, is because I started thinking about the the concept of fictional hit songs, songs from fictional universes that are presented as hits in their universes and i want to 
uh, clear up what that is and and is not. Uh, it's not like I have. Did you do a bizarre albums on Freddy Krueger making an album? Yes. Okay. Well, that explains Freddy's why greatest hits. That explains why I had a link to Freddy Krueger singing "Wooly Bully" in my notes from the last time <laughs> that we spoke. <laughs> so it's not that. It's not fictional characters making music, and it's right. not like alter egos because there's a million of those. Whatever. Um, uh, I guess Mariah Carey was in Glitter, or Chris Gaines, or Ziggy Stardust, and it's not even all fake bands because there's plenty of scenarios where in a fictional world a fake band is presented as struggling for example right the the monkeys i don't think were supposed to be very successful on right. the monkey show that was part of the charm despite the fact that those records were actually doing really really well i'm talking specifically about when there is a world where a band is supposed to be the biggest thing ever mm-hmm. and we all have our tripping points of where the reality or unreality of a world um loses us like for example i don't have a problem with watching or at least as a kid i certainly did not have a problem with watching a rocky movie and rocky and drago just stand there with their hands at their sides waiting for each other to punch each other in the face Mm -hmm. you know that that didn't bother me but it does bother me when i'm watching um uh three amigos the other night and chevy chase is playing guitar and you say he's a drummer and a bit of a vocalist i'm prepared to say never spent that much time playing six strings because he just holds down an E major chord the entire time. <laughs> yeah, that that is a big pet peeve of mine in movies. Like people that are, it's like I, I get it if it's not a major part of the movie. Like, yeah. okay, you don't, you, I can understand why, but maybe, maybe shoot it a little different so you don't see. But the, the biggest, the biggest uh, bad example is, I don't know when the last time you saw La Bamba is, but Lou Diamond Phillips' fake guitar playing is terrible it's really funny my wife and i have a we were listening to the los lobos hit version of la bamba yeah uh-huh. recently and we're like we need to revisit la bamba so i'll, I'll be getting back to that shortly i, I totally believe you <laughs> yeah. at a certain point the world went from the the ultra fakery of where it was acceptable to just stick the palm of your hand over the fretboard and mm-hmm. maybe slide it back and forth <laughs> yeah. to where i think it sort of became a thing where they would teach them a chord and then they would just yeah. claw their hand into that position and move it up and down the right. neck. And that seems to have been what, what Chevy Chase did. And there's like three guitar playing scenes in Three Amigos. I think it just goes to show his his sense of entitlement and that he did not need to to, to, to master the little <laughs> things because aren't you all lucky that Chevy Chase is here right now? Right, right. So right. I was thinking specifically, and this is what I hit you up about, about um, and most people will be familiar with the movie Heathers. And if you are, you will almost definitely recall the uh, the song that's played throughout Heathers um, by a fictional band called Big Fun and their fictional smash song, Teenage Suicide. Does that ring a bell to you? You know, I have actually never seen Heathers. I'm very aware of it, but I've never seen the movie. Okay, hit pause. I'll talk to you again in about an hour and 45 minutes. (laughs) I'm sorry to start off on the wrong foot here, but uh, I didn't know what was coming at me. I've sent you links to to, uh, all of these songs. If you want to click on link number one that I sent you, this is perfect. Because what I want to do is I want to talk about these songs that are presented as hit songs and, and... how can I believe a world if you're telling me this is the biggest band in the world and their song completely sucks and could never be a hit? So I want you, Tony Thaxton, to judge in the late 80s the real-world hit worthiness of the um, fictional hit Teenage Suicide by Big Fun. Drugs and alcohol don't mix. No shit. Your lily white is so well. You're reading the last rights from a credit card. You know my head's too soft and the lights. 
All right. So yeah, give me give me again as as a person that's not seen Heather's. Give me yeah. some give me some context here. Okay, so Heather's is not not just a dark comedy, it's a black comedy about right. a school where it becomes cool to commit suicide. Okay. You got to see Heather's, dude. Yeah, it's one of, I have like a, a, a there's a a bunch of these movies I feel feel like that like everybody knows that I just still have never seen i see i'm in that me all these years i'm in that same boat but i'm telling you this one's way more important that you see than most of the other ones this is Uh uh-huh well after hearing this song clearly yes (laughs) right so what do you think of the real uh, the real the real see it kind of works i assumed you would be familiar with heathers it kind of works in the context of the movie where um sincerity is is so devalued and actual real, and, you know, the commodification of uh, human values and human emotion and stuff like that. So the fact that you can make a cool hip PSA out of being opposed to, to teenage suicide with a song that does not actually really address the reasons why kids would consider committing teenage suicide. Uh-huh. It works in the context. I was never much of an Oingo Boingo guy, so I'm not sure how much it works for me as a piece of music. I've weird, I've weirdly started getting into Oingo Boingo later in life. I think uh, this this song would love to be more like Oingo Boingo, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. The so what is it? Uh, how is it used in the movie then? Like, is it a band performing it? Is it on like a? No, it's been a while since I've seen it. I think it's more of like in the backdrop of the milieu that this would be like on a radio playing at the beginning of a scene that somebody would turn off before they start talking Got kind it. of thing. Got so it. it's just looming as part of the, the the larger cultural conversation about teen suicide. Yeah, yeah. Dude, it, it, prime Christian Slater trying to be Jack Nicholson. The, <laughs> right. uh, the absolute dead center prime of Winona Ryder's Winona Ryderness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's what like eighty nine, maybe just slightly about. later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, very aware of it. Just yeah, just has escaped me all these years. How about Josie and the Pussycats? You ever spend any time with that? Uh, I know the soundtrack more than the movie. Okay, what's up with that? Uh, well, because a lot of uh, there's good people involved in it, uh, and I the I never really had much of an urge to see the movie. Uh, and, but I know like Adam Schlesinger wrote songs for the soundtrack and he's the Fountains of Wayne guy. Yes. Um, okay. He's going to come up again in here for sure. Oh yeah. That dude, he, and uh, super just insanely talented dude. Uh, and I got to work with him a few times and you know, he is, uh, someone we lost to COVID this year, which is such a huge bummer. Um, but uh yeah so i think honestly his involvement was was the biggest reason for me checking out the soundtrack and i believe is it the girl from is it the letters to cleo singer that sings oh is it really i i don't quote me on that it's i now i'm spacing is it her or is it the girl from that dog now are you gonna tell me that tara reed didn't really play the drums (laughs) tara reed wow I kind yeah, of, Tara Reid is the drummer. Of, yeah, I knew. I think I knew that, but I just forget. So yeah, Tara Reid and uh, Rachel Lee Cook and somebody else. Kay Hanley of the band Letters to Cleo provided the lead vocals, backup vocals by her, Tara Reid, and uh, Canadian superstar Biff Naked. Biff Naked, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, that turned into Obi Wan there for a minute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Biff was Biff was a was a, a Warp Tour mainstay. You would have run into to Biff out yeah, there. Yeah, again, I, I remember. I, 
again, remember the name more than uh, yeah. than oh, the rest. Rosario Dawson, did you say that? Holy shit, she's one of the pussycats, oh, huh? That's what I was trying to remember is who the other person was, yeah. Wow, that's a very young Rosario Dawson. This is one of these movies that was uh, destroyed critically at the time. A lot of these, for some weird reason, same thing with Heather's, big failure at the time and then grew into cult status. I'm going to have to take a look at it because I'm willing to believe that the Josie and the Pussycats film is indeed a piece of crap. But... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's yeah that's probably 95 or 96 probably something like 2001 that. believe it or not really wow that yes. is way later than i thought for some reason mm-hmm. i had a memory of that being out when i was in high school but i am i'm wrong i was trying to figure out what the absolute biggest smash single was from josie and the pussycats i think i found it apologies to their fans if i've settled on the third best song <laughs> Yeah, I, re- I I remember hearing this song before. So I think I think there was a point. I think I actually owned the soundtrack because that's uh-huh. how much I loved Adam's work. And I I can't even. I don't think he did all of the soundtrack. It might even just be a song or two. Yeah, I'm curious if that's one of his. He is he's not credited as boy. Um, he the produced by Babyface. Oh, Kenneth Edmonds. <laughs> Babyface and 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 someone else Gibbs who's uh, who does not is not worthy of a, a Wikipedia entry apparently, so it's about half Babyface half Adam Schlesinger that is a Babyface uh, Deborah Kaplan, an American screenwriter is credited as one of the writers. She probably came up with the title and some of the lyrics. Yeah. Another screenwriter gets a credit. Oh, I see. It is Dave Gibbs, best known for his work in Boston-based power pop band Gigolo Ants. Oh yeah, a a U N T S. I'm not familiar I'm, with the Gigolo I Ants. Them. Yeah. And who saw this coming? The fourth credited writer, Adam Duritz of Counting Crows. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, that took a turn. Mm-hmm. Did not see that coming. I did not see that coming. <laughs> I mean, it's so funny because I, 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 I can't help but think, who in this mix of a production was he sleeping with to have <laughs> gotten involved with throwing a bridge in and getting a songwriting? Because otherwise, what the hell would he have been doing anywhere near this? Unless, unless I, I don't know Adam Duritz as well as I think I do. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know, and I, I, I don't have. Oh no, 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 no! He's credited. He's the lead songwriter on one of the other ones duritz has four songwriting credits on this at least wow yeah i had no idea that i mean yeah yeah i i don't i don't have a problem with him but yeah this doesn't it doesn't really? uh, sound like anything he would have done but uh yeah i, I don't know oh, i got a big problem i got a big problem with adam duritz. yeah i i, I don't know yeah. they have uh they had some moments for me that i kind of enjoyed um he was one of those guys who famously, um, as soon as they blew up, he wouldn't play the hit song anymore because uh. he said Mr. J- Mr. Jones was about wanting to be famous and he could no longer relate to feeling that Ugh. way. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. And I've known people who are big fans who have gone to concerts and it being like, they're, it's time for the encore and they still haven't heard a song they recognize. Ugh. Yeah, I not a fan yeah. of that move, but I didn't know all that. Yeah. But I was only speaking about the music. You know what song is great? Mm-hmm. is uh 
it was one of those things where it was weirdly a b-side but then like somehow ended up getting played on the radio and it's not even on one of their uh records but a song called einstein on the beach do you know that song no but i do know like like a a four-part neoclassical thing by uh, philip glass that i listen to from time to time called einstein on the beach interesting i'm not aware of that one. yeah but yeah this is uh it's just it's a really good like pop rock song that like yeah. such a catchy chorus and i'm like why was this uh, i think it's like their strongest song and it's it's on like a one of those dgc rarities albums it is odd how often that happens yeah. that's a whole other show is is b-sides that became the the unintentional a-side i want to say it's either crocodile rock or benny and the jets is a b-side like it happens uh, quite a bit yeah 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 interesting that's weird so so with all due respect to um uh well i don't have to be respectful to adam schlesinger because he had absolutely nothing to do with the song that you just listened to i'm listening to that and i'm thinking now you're really qualified to weigh in on this because that is like uh that's 4 p.m at the warp tour all day (laughs) that song right there and i guess the question is did somebody skillfully make another one of those songs or was it just real real easy to make one of those songs uh i don't know probably somewhere in the middle of that i don't know that it's necessarily real real easy to make one of those songs because like maybe uh you know the actual coming up with like the chord progression and all that but the you know you still got to write a catchy melody over that and i feel like sure that's that's coming through strong on there uh yeah i think it's a fun song all right, now I have always had my reservations about the real-world hit-worthiness of one of the most famous and most lauded, fictional, successful rock bands of all time. So take a listen to the third link that I sent you. Okay. Yeah, it's been it's been a bit since I've seen Almost Famous, uh, right? But uh, and I, I do like that movie. However, I don't mm-hmm. think I like it as much as a lot of other people do. And I'm realizing right. maybe in this that maybe maybe the music has something to do with it. Because uh, yeah, I don't I don't think there's anything like memorable about that. I'm not saying it's right. bad, but it's just kind of it's no. just kind of there. It's very much there. It's called Fever Dog, which to me sounds, it's a little too on the nose. It almost <laughs> sounds like if you were wanted to make fun of, you know, uh, sort of southern leaning classic rock of the 70s, that's kind of yeah. where you would start. It's very of the era. It sounds a bit more like a grunge song than it, than it does. That, that could be a, a, a rejected Mother Love Bone song. Yeah. And I think some of that even too is, is almost down to like the actual production of it you know what i mean because it, mm-hmm. it does it sounds a, a lot more modern than if it actually was the 70s right i guess in their defense you know it obviously would not have been bad for the movie if this band that supposedly had a minor hit actually had this classic song that we all still remembered and love today but in the movie they are supposed to be the idea is that they are almost famous they have this song that's yeah. just good enough to get them picked up as an opener and to get their little their little ride on the carousel and then inevitably get bumped off of it right so 
maybe it was in their best interest that that song is kind of mediocre. Yeah. 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 If that's what they're going for, they nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> I don't think we're going to have time to go through all of the, the ones that I sent you. I, I There's a movie that I really want to check out based on my research for this. I forget the name of it. It's a, it's a, I think it's from the nineties or the two thousands. It's a, it's a faux documentary about this supposed punk band from the seventies featuring conjoined twins on guitar and vocals. Whoa. I know nothing of this. Okay. Take a quick listen. It's kind of worth it. Uh, the next link is the fictional band is called the bang bang and their, uh, signature tune to the best I was able to figure out is called two way Romeo. Okay. And this is, and the question is, could you buy that? This is this sort of forgotten band that, you know, uh, was a blip on the punk radar that should not be forgotten. And like, yes, I actually could see that. Oh yeah, I think I think that totally works for for what it is supposed to be. It's a good my... little tune. It's a fizz, fizzy little pop song. Yeah, and it's just like uh, yeah for for going for like the uh, the just the 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 punk uh, sound of it or whatever. I I don't know. In in a way, that could be a, a fine a, another thing. that's a fine line to walk because I feel like sometimes movies can do the punk scene like so cheesily but uh mm-hmm. this seems like it actually does it fairly well and like creating kind of the look and the sound i feel like is is fairly well done there so the movie is called brothers of the head okay and it's a 2005 it's it's described on um wikipedia as a mockumentary but i don't think it was made to make fun of them i think it's supposed to be imagine if this was a real band right. that we are making a documentary about um, and it's it's supposed to be based in 1977. I, I'm I'm going to check out Brothers of the Head based on that because solid concept, solid tune. Um, but move on to the next one, which I also have a quibble with. I have to imagine you will be familiar with this one as well. Man, I forgot about this movie. The uh, the Mark Wahlberg classic rock star based on the real life story of Tim Ripper Owens, who was in a tribute band of Judas Priest and became the lead singer of Judas Priest. Yes. For a time. Yeah, this, uh, again, I, I uh, in my opinion, I feel like uh, for what this is supposed to be, I feel like the, the music works well for it. Uh, I'm not saying the movie is good i did <laughs> i did see this movie it was a long time ago uh but uh yeah it's i think the music works for what it's supposed to be and it's not that necessarily the perf i don't remember the performances being necessarily bad but it's just so hard to suspend the hey that's mark Wahlberg. 
of it all. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the secret, and this is a, a, something that obviously came up a lot in preparing for this show. I don't know what the secret is to good lip syncing. Yeah. But it's a, it seems to be quite a bit harder than I realized. For one thing, it might just be as simple as if, if the, if you're mimicking a singer who's screaming, you might just actually have to scream so that something is going on with the muscles in your throat. I, cause otherwise it's a, it's a pretty dead giveaway. Yeah. In general. I mean, that's kind of a, uh, a note when shooting just a music video is to like, not just lip sync, like to actually sing. Oh, there you go. You yeah. have some experience here. You've done a bit of lip syncing. Yeah. Well, not so much you, but you've been around lip syncing. Right. Yeah. So that yeah. that is key. Like it, it is going to look more realistic if you are doing it. I mean, sure, you're not yeah. getting that audio, but at least you're doing it. So it's going to look like you're doing it. Right. So he might not be good at lip syncing. And also, this is very important. He's Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. <laughs> and buying him as a 1980s metal lead singer is, is really, really tough. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think in, in a way, I almost feel like that's what hurt that movie. Yeah, because like, I, I think I, I think a lot of people had that problem. What happens a lot of times, I think I know screenwriters are the ones who end up being butthurt about this is, uh, and sometimes directors is you have this idea for this movie and you're, you have the script and you feel really strongly that it's going to work. But the easiest way to sell a movie is with a movie star. So yeah. while you might think, boy, you know, X, Y, and Z would be perfect for this. If Mark Wahlberg expresses interest, you have to do it with Mark Wahlberg, even if he's horribly wrong for it which he's not horribly i actually thought he was better at the decadence part there's a see, i actually watched it for the first time somewhat recently where he's got a line of, of groupies and he's all wasted and his ex jennifer aniston walks in on him and stuff like that that seemed to come to him a little bit more naturally <laughs> than yeah that's that's so often the thing is they just they get these big name people to play these roles whereas i feel like yeah, yeah i think music movies in general can be so hard to pull off because they just it's just done so wrong so many times. And I think probably that's being a musician looking at these movies. I'm sure a lot of sure. people can watch them and be like, oh, that was a movie. <laughs> Whereas, yeah, right, uh, right, right. yeah, it's just such a hard, hard thing to pull off. Because, yeah, like we talked about it, there's so much bad fake playing. And in this case, bad fake singing. Um, yeah. And every now and then somebody like, I, I don't know if this is one of the things on your list, but that's what one of many things that I love about that thing you do is that yeah yeah if we have time we'll get to that okay. thing you do yeah that's yeah. actually uh i mean i feel like that song I, I think i heard that at ralph's the other day yeah like great great song also adam schlesinger again uh yes and what i love and again i think at the time like all those guys in that band kind of were pretty unknown in the movie maybe yes. steve zahn had been in a few things uh um, right but relatively unknown and then they Tom Hanks directed it and made all of those guys learn how to play all of those songs. So it's like mm -hmm. you're it's obviously it's not them actually playing, but when you see them playing, it is they're playing it right. And another just minor touch that I love about that movie is you know, you hear the song that thing you do a bunch in that movie, but every time you hear it and it's them playing it it's a little different. They don't just use the recording every time. That's and, right. Yeah, there's earlier on, it's actually, because uh, I was looking for a version of that to send you. We won't have time to get to it. Everybody knows that thing you do. And yeah, the song actually evolves as an actual song would. I love the story of that, that 
I, I forget, it was somewhere either uh, Forrest Gump or Philadelphia. It might have been Philadelphia where there was so much press and literally so many awards. Tom Hanks was like just on like a two-year nonstop awards tour uh-huh. of just being, he would just go into a new city so they could throw him a gala for how amazing he was one time around the world for Forrest Gump and then all over again for Philadelphia. And he spent so much time traveling on that. He'd never written any screenplay, but he just needed something else to do rather than just to be celebrated for being Tom Hanks that he started it to see how far he could get with it. Mm -hmm. And uh, one more reason why he is perhaps our greatest living movie star. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's, that is, uh, yeah, I don't, that in uh, Spinal Tap, <laughs> I feel like, are, you yeah. know, in very different ways, but yeah, two of the greatest music movies ever. Yeah, well, uh, we can get to Tap in a second. Skip over the next one entirely. That's uh, Jarvis Cocker and a Radiohead guy and some other people are supposed to be a famous band in the Harry Potter world. I don't care about the Harry <laughs> Potter world. I can't make myself care about it. So uh, next up, I don't know how familiar you are with the Metalocalypse Death Clock phenomenon. Uh, I'm... I'm again it's one of those things I'm aware of but uh yeah. don't know a ton about it. Well that that makes you perfect. So so check out that <laughs> next link and if the idea is that a band, a death metal band is so huge that they become like the world's eighth largest economy in and of themselves and then they stop recording and they finally come out of uh, creative hibernation to do a 30-second jingle for a coffee company uh-huh. that draws hundreds of thousands of people to their literal demise at the end of the earth just to watch the band perform this 30-second coffee jingle. <laughs> if you're telling me all these things are true, that better be one hell of a coffee jingle. <laughs> so you tell me if you think that this piece of music lives up to that billing. Okay. That is that is ridiculous. I'm buying it. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's supposed to be ridiculous. So yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Anything you know, being ridiculous like that and knows it's being ridiculous. I'm I'm all for because uh, I listened to that song on a loop for about a month when it came out. <laughs> it's it's pretty amusing. Yeah, uh, and and I feel like that's isn't that even a thing that Brendan Small is kind of even like tours and stuff now, like doing this music doesn't he oh i've seen them twice all right <laughs> yeah now it seems a little a little nasty when you get in bed with adult swim for all of the funky good vibes you get off of your tv when you watch it <laughs> it seems like a lot of people who do business with them end up feeling really bitter about it and adult swim ends up owning everything that they did and uh-huh. they walk away without rights to the thing that they made right i don't know the uh, all the specifics but i do know that at a certain point Brendan started a very, very, very similar band called, I think, like Galacticon. Okay. And I think it's because he just pretty much, it became, you could either continue doing Death Clock Records and give, uh, you know, Turner the money. Yeah. Or you could try to go off on your own with whatever success you're able to achieve. But yeah, he's he's still touring a, a similar thing. So uh, here's a little known fact. Diane Lane 
has not once but twice portrayed a world-famous music superstar on screen. I don't think I can think of either. I don't think you would be able to. If you <laughs> click on the, the next link, there's a movie that um, Walter, whatever his name is, Walter Hill, I think, the guy who made the guy who made The Warriors okay. made this movie, which is a really famous misfire. I watched it recently. And it has a young Willem Dafoe as this like greaser, bad boy, street punk, bad guy opposite the perhaps the least charismatic leading man in the history of film whose name escapes me. (laughs) And um, it's basically the whole world is a town. And so she's the biggest singer in town, i.e. the world. And Willem Dafoe's greaser thugs abduct her. And the schmo has to go and uh, and and rescue her. And this is uh, this is the song from the end of Streets of Fire, which is when she's finally uh, returned to freedom and the stage so that she can perform a half-assed meatloaf song. Again, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say that for for what it's going for, I I feel like mm-hmm. that uh, that nails it kind of. Uh, so that was one of the songs written for the movie by Jim Steinman of Meatloaf fame, mm-hmm. and that's a very distinctly not so much Meatloaf because he also wrote some of the Bonnie Tyler hits. I was just gonna say like, I literally was going to ask if that was Bonnie Tyler singing. It is not really. They actually, com- combined the singing voices of. Lori Sargent, who I don't know to have um, had any solo success, and um, Holly Sherwood, best known for her work, both lead and backing with Jim Steinman. The band with, what's her name? Ellen Aim, I think is supposed to be the name of the fictional pop singer. Her backing band on stage, I am led to believe, is actually the punk band Face to Face. What? Yeah. (laughs) In, what is this from? 1984? 1984. When has Wikipedia ever been wrong? <laughs> oh, the movie also has Rick Moranis as this like really powerful like bad guy. <laughs> there's 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 lots of reasons to why. If you were going to make bizarre movies, yeah, as a podcast, Streets of Fire would be a pretty good place to start. There's just a lot. There's a lot to chew on. It doesn't come together, but it's a big swing. Yeah, that is that is a thing I've considered. By the way, like doing some bonus episodes on some music movies like this. So yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe we'll get there. Yeah, there's just there's strange things involved with Streets of Fire. Weird. Yeah, I don't remember that. As I said, nobody does. Nobody does, and nobody <laughs> remembers this next movie that also featured an even younger Diane Lane as a singer of a fictional successful band the stains from the movie ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains Wow. 
Wow, Laura Dern in there too. Laura Dern also a bandmate. Yep. Yeah. Again, no no knowledge, previous knowledge of this movie at all. Like the I don't, film, literally don't think I've ever heard of this one. I know the film features acting roles by Steve Jones and Paul Cook of the Sex Pistols, Paul Simonon. I don't know how you say him, the bass player from the Clash. Some guys from the Tubes. Yeah, this is like worth a look. Directed by Lou Adler. Yeah, it uh, it it. Again, it's another one that seems like what it's going for. It's it's hitting fairly well. Yeah, I tend to uh, agree. We got a couple minutes left. One of the most famous music superstars from a fictional universe would have to be uh, Bill and Ted's band Wild Stallions. Mm-hmm. And now another he- movie that I have actually never seen. Okay, this is problematic. <laughs> And you, and this makes a lot of people mad. Knowing that you, I do this to people too. I've never seen like Top Gun and shit like that, but me neither. I mean, as, that's another one for me. You've been stuck in your house for like five months now. You're running out of excuses, Tony Thaxton. Watching it for the first time in the year 2020, a movie that's 30 whatever years old, is it going to be enjoyable the first time? now you know what i mean because a lot of movies like you revisit that you grew up with you can keep watching but to go and watch something for the first time a lot of times with comedies that's hard yeah comedy does not age well i tell you what enough time has gone by with a lot of these things that when i go back and watch stuff that i saw when i was like 11 years old i may as well be seeing it for the first time because i typically i typically remember the trailer moments and absolutely nothing else so it's hard for me to say sometimes that it would be hard for me to say, well, I only like this because of the nostalgia, because if I don't remember it at all, then the nostalgia thing kind of goes out the window. Don't sleep on the fact that George Carlin plays a fairly significant role in the first Bill and Ted's movie. Right. And so does Keanu Reeves. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I've seen bits and pieces, but I've just never yeah. seen the whole thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, you don't need to listen to them then, because the weird thing that I noticed in preparing for the show is that... The Wild Stallions, despite being the band that brings like peace to the universe, don't actually seem to have songs. Like all it is is one of them playing rhythm guitar and one of them shredding, sounding suspiciously like Steve Vai. Uh-huh. And I, at some point, as a promo thing, they put out a cassette, a mixtape of their songs, and it's literally just one guy playing rhythm guitar and one guy playing lead. There's no drums, there's no vocals. And when they finally get on stage and perform a song at the end of it all, one of them's got his easy top beard, and they're just shredding, sounding unmistakably like Steve Vai over God Gave Rock and Roll to You by Kiss. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so they just, they just, this, this is a movie that completely punted on the, if it's going to be a, a fictionally successful band, they should have a plausibly successful song. No such concern. <laughs> <in Dead Camp. laughs> um, I want to do two more quickly. You mentioned, um, Spinal Tap, they're kind of uh, a weird one because they're not presented in the movie as being humongously successful, but they are presented as being on the tail end of a successful earlier run. Mm -hmm. So I think the only surefire hit I know that they had was Give Me Some Money, but Uh I I do not care to revisit Give Me Some Money. (laughs) So uh, I don't need to probably uh, refresh your memory with what Stonehenge sounds like. I feel like if I had been... 16 years old in a three-quarter length Iron Maiden t-shirt in 1981, I probably am into Stonehenge. Uh, yeah, that uh, that genre is not necessarily anything I was ever super into. I think when I was yeah. young, I, you know, little hand-picked some, some songs here and there, but I was never a big metal guy. Uh, but, God, I love this movie so much. And, and it does... And it does hit all of even though it's a ridiculous comedy 
it's it's painfully real though at the same time Lars Ulrich uh, said if you're in a band it's actually a horror movie yeah yeah and and uh but then even you know same thing down to the actual songs in it uh they kind of nail what it's going after and they even have like their different eras you know you bring up give me some money that was kind of their first thing and then they go to the flower people and all you know and it evolves over time and and uh but all of those eras that they go into they nail and again all those all of those guys they're and in this case they're actually singing and playing everything so uh i think there's there's something to be said for that yeah one of the great thrills thrills of my life is harry shearer came on the jason ellis show recently as Derek smalls ah like wouldn't wouldn't talk about being from america because he's from england it was terrific it was so great he commits so hard that's fantastic I want to check out one more thing before I let you go, but before I play that, is the Danny Bonaducci Partridge Family Era solo album on your radar for Bizarre Albums? Uh, yes, like not, okay. not super specifically, but I am aware of it, yes. Yeah, there's apparently a 13-year-old Danny Bonaducci recorded a song, although he claims he didn't even sing on it, called I'll Be Your Magician, in which he seduces an older woman. Yes, I've heard this about that he's even said, I forget who the guy was, but yeah, I think he's even gone on record saying like who the person was that sang, did right, most of right, the singing. Right, yeah. right, right, right. So finally, here's a weird twist on the concept that we've been talking about. This is a fictional band that had a TV show. They were, I think the show and the band were both called The Heights, and mm-hmm. they were depicted on the show as a struggling band. But then the song that the struggling band had actually became a massive mainstream How do you pop talk hit. to an angel? Please briefly refresh your memory. <laughs> uh, oh, you don't we, have to. You, you know what I'm talking about here. Yes, yes, yes. Very. It's been a while since I've heard the actual song, but yes, very familiar, though. It hasn't gotten any better with age. Not only is it completely <laughs> like generic disposable stuff, it's also a pretty clear rewrite of uh, Endless Summer Nights by Richard Marks, which was completely <laughs> unremarkable, but a hit in its own right like four years prior to this. I believe you mean unremarkable. <laughs> I like what you did there. <laughs> Sorry, continue. <laughs> that, that should be the name of his greatest hits album. <laughs> But the great twist is, so the Heights are a fictional band that are struggling in their fictional world that actually have a massive hit song in the real world, and then two weeks later, the TV show's canceled. Was it that quick? I remember the, yeah, I remember the show did not last, and that song yeah. was huge. That the song, song outli- was... The song outlived the TV show. You'd yeah, think that... that alone would have bought you some time, but you would be Yeah. Wrong. It really is shocking they didn't, because it, did it even get all the way through its first season? I don't believe so. Yeah, I don't think so either. Must That's have been crazy. real bad. Must have been like yeah. cop rock bad. <laughs> I've, I oh my god, cop rock. Oh, the the greatest, the greatest worst thing ever. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna, right, I'm gonna let you go. I have to go. I've already stayed too long. As always, thank you for your time and your thoughts. You are Tony Thaxton, and you are the host of the Bizarre Albums podcast, which I cannot recommend enough. Thank you, and I will see you soon. Thank you.